Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're talking gas stations or petrol stations, roadside retailers, some of the history of that sector, the current trends that are affecting it, and what energy transition means both the opportunities and the impacts. Our guest is Dan Munford. Dan is the owner and president of Insight Research, a global consultancy focused on convenience stores and roadside retailers. And Dan has a 25-year career in the sector. He also sits on the board of a number of food retailers, digital loyalty businesses, and automated retail businesses. As always, you can support the podcast by giving us a review on the platform you're listening on, or sharing it and liking it on social media like LinkedIn. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Dan, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure. I, I enjoy listening to your podcast. It's a surprise and a, and a pleasure to be on one. Well, uh, too kind. Okay, so we're talking today, though, gas stations, consumers, uh, geopolitics, the, the whole world of retail fuel, which obviously you, you spent your career on and currently in. Before we sort of dig into how what, what the current trends are and what the future might hold in a in an energy transition world and a digitized world, can you just set us up with some background and the history of gas stations? I think we'd all find that quite fascinating. Well, I, I guess the first thing to point out is that they've been around quite a long time, and we we're very used to them. Really, if you look at the liquid fuel supply chain, which is perhaps the sort of complicated way of putting it you know it's over 100 years old isn't it you know it's it's been there since we had horses and it's spent a lot of those 100 years evolving but it's it's always been there through that period and and we're very dependent on it yeah you're triggering me thinking about romans having their sort of mansion houses at way stops and whether they sold uh kit kats and mars bars and so forth but that that aside so it, it has been around for a very long time. Can you give us some sense of the evolution? You know, what were the early gas stations like compared to those in the 50s and, and, and up to now? Well, it's, I mean, I guess the sort of overview point is that it's changed a lot during that time. Although it is still based upon, you know, liquid fuels being very much a key, key part of it. At the beginning, you know, looking back at the beginning of that time period, it was all about liquid fuels with not much else and very small stations with one pump or maybe two pumps and you know that was where things started obviously it changed a lot uh, if you look more recently it's it, the shop became has become more and more important and that's where a lot of the recent development has been over the last two decades yeah and there's still a lot of diversity even you know around the world and even within countries you know there are states here in the US where you you have to still have your fuel pumped by someone which is relatively fascinating but there is a serious side to this which is gas stations are somewhat like the trash the bins if they're not if they're not usable if they're not full or in the case of trash taken away this can cause some you know this is a serious political issue right this, this has a society-wide impact on how well these they're, they're functioning they're very immediate to the polity yeah i mean you know it's it's it, i guess gas stations in geopolitics you don't really put the two together do you but but i guess it, it, when when they're not there and they're not working perhaps because of a strike or or some kind of fuel shortage 
or something bigger than that you know which is you know potentially where, where we where we find ourselves to, today you know in, in some in, in some parts of the world it's suddenly vital so they do play they do play an important role and it is very sensitive they can be very sensitive politically to what happens to energy markets around the world and it's quite interesting obviously to look upstream at what's going on there and um, you know relating that to, to experience for the consumer at the pump but I, I remember being in Argentina a decade ago and the long line waiting at the gas station was sort of quite extraordinary for someone coming from the UK and then the US where that would be sort of socially, you know, it would be uh, the newspapers would be filled with sort of screaming headlines, right, if that were the case. Yeah, I think, you know, the, just thinking about we're very depend. we've got used to it. Uh, it's very dependable. We're used to, to being able to pull over and, and fill up more or less anywhere we like uh, at very short notice. In other words, it's convenient. And we've got very used to it. Obviously, that doesn't always happen if there are shortages. And, and queues, queues are an exceptional experience in the, in the existing fuel supply, supply chain, you know, I guess. And it's, it's, it's very well managed. It's very successful, we could say at the moment. We've already mentioned this one trend, which is the gas station has gone from being purely a liquid fuel retailer into trying to generate other revenue streams via things like having a shop, etc. Before we talk about the shop, can we talk about why is it that that points to the incredibly efficient market that it is that selling liquid fuels alone is no longer viable business, so to speak, in many parts of particularly the developed world? Yeah, well, I guess just thinking about, you know, the, the last few decades, if we look at the evolution of the model, the traditional model for these gas stations would be fuel is the driver. You know, when the light comes on, uh, you pull over and you and you fill up with fuel. And then maybe you pick up uh, two or three discretionary items, you know, it could be tobacco, snacks, drinks or newspaper, something like that during your visit. And in that kind of business model, which was I guess the, the typical business model for many many of those 100 years, 80% of, of the gross profit uh, contribution in that, uh, in that business would come from the fuel. And, you know, a small percentage, 20% perhaps, would come from the, the store. And I guess the big shift that's happened, particularly in the last 20 to 30 years, and particularly driven by, you know, the more efficient, more entrepreneurial operators and, and owners of these businesses is to is to change that quite fundamentally and 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 move that business away from a dependency on on the fuel profit margin into other more profitable successful areas fuel still plays a part but it's it's often become a much less important product than it was so you know i suppose if you look at some of these businesses worldwide you know the circle k's the eg groups the apple greens of this world you know they've really concentrated on food service so that's coffee and hot food to go and that kind of thing as well as general merchandise and grocery and you know they've built a business which is far less dependent on on that fuel contributor and far more diversified into into quite high margin areas yeah this is the you know you're starting to see the sort of the takeover of the fmcg players into this space or have done over the last 20 years than the traditional retailers which were for the most part i mean when we talk about the early part of the industry it was very much just vertically integrated oil companies hence you know the most recognizable names on the forecourt are the the exxons the, the bps the chevrons the piece you know etc can you just talk about those days and their 
participation in the industry? Like, why did they vertically integrate and how vital were gas stations, petrol stations in the UK to their business models? Well, I think, you know, historically very important. And I think that focus on on needing to to, to own the, you know, the, the downstream part as well as the upstream part, I guess has sort of ebbed and flowed over the years. But it's, I'd say it's probably more important again now because of the profit opportunity from some of those other products that's available in the gas station. And in a way, you know, I think that the major oil businesses are as hooked on that opportunity as everybody else is, you know, and they're going after it in many cases, you know, retailers like Shell are going after that very successfully, very aggressively. Obviously, at times when, the, you know, the upstream the price of oil is under pressure, perhaps, as it has been in the past. The downstream part of the business has been, you know, really, really important to their profitability. And I think they've learned from that lesson, some of the big uh, major oils. And, you know, they value the retail opportunity downstream. And I think what you have to remember is that if you look at retail generally, there's a huge background shift going on, you know, to more convenience retail and, uh, you know, moving away from large shops to small shops little and often convenience is is very much what the consumer is looking for so you know many of these gas stations or perhaps we should call them roadside retailers you know are are exactly in the right location for for that consumer you know so the all majors find themselves in a happy position of you know their network being very well located for that opportunity so if they're able to exploit this and many of them have been successful are being successful in doing that then it adds a lot of value to their business Yeah, there are periods when there is an enormous margin between, as you point to, the upstream pricing, the wholesale pricing, and the downstream pricing. The and we have we we've obviously seen. Well, there are a number. We'll come on to it. There are a number of traders that have gotten into this space. You know, very notably in the mid two thousand tens, you saw a number of the big trading houses, the the Vitols and the Trafiguras, under various brand names investing heavily in the developing world in retail businesses in Latin America, in Africa. Can you just talk to that a little bit? I mean, what is that trend indicative? Was that just a a period in the market or have we seen lots of investment in the developing world as well? And if so, why? Well, I think it's a very important point, actually. I mean, if you look at, I guess, the developing world or sort of, you know, wealth level, I, I guess, three or four, a different way of putting it, market. I guess it's almost a kind of milestone for success, isn't it? And for and for and and for progress in a in in a in 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 a country. You know, you you have gas stations and you have a good network, and and you you start to have a retail opportunity in those locations. So you know, it's um, it, I guess it's a it's almost a milestone to to becoming a, a developed economy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and also represents you know incredible margin opportunities as well, where typically fuels in those developing countries are much higher because it's a less efficient market than say in the states or uh, in 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 Western Europe. Yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, and um, you know, I, I guess a lot of those markets again will will be talking about the energy transition. You know, their relative speed to that energy transition is probably going to be a little bit slower, a little bit later than other some other parts of the planet and so you know the liquid fuels opportunity is something which is going to be there longer you know so there are also other reasons to get into those developing market okay so you've had sort of historically oil producers vertically integrated wanting to capture the retail space there's been great margins there for the fuel itself 
uh, in a highly efficient market, but you, if you have the upstream piece, then you can obviously capture that. But you know, increasingly over time, these you know, as you say, it's gone from being sort of a, a gas or a petrol station to a roadside retailer, and you've had a different set of organisations come in or set up that are really starting to dominate the space. And this is this, as you you mentioned a couple there, Circle K or the Quick Trips over here, Bucky's if you live in Texas, you know, which are actually it is about quality and convenience and stuff. Can you just help us understand? I know it's a little bit outside the world of commodities, but can you help us understand what are the key drivers of success for those setups? Is it cost? Is it convenience? Is it quality? You know, how are the different uh, setups tackling it? Well, I guess, you know, if you take, you can look at it in a number of different ways in terms of evaluating their business. But I suppose coffee and food is probably one of the most demanding things that you have to transition into in terms of, um, you know, diversifying your business into high, high margin areas. In order to do coffee and food well, you know, you need certain operational skills. It's a, it's a much harder product group to deliver successfully, same every time, you know, and uh, with, with very high quality and, uh, and so on. So I'd say, you know, obviously the brand that that sits under, the operational standards, the efficiencies within that uh, within that business, you know, big, are, are very difficult, and and that's what separates men from boys, really, in terms of doing this very well or playing at it. And we've seen a lot of success from, you know, you mentioned Bucky's, EG Group, perhaps a, a great example as a global business that's had a lot of success in food service. But it's it's not been it's not an easy thing to do. You know, it's from a retail point of view, these are very complicated businesses now, and. Uh, it requires a lot of skills, a lot of expertise to to do food and coffee and so on in in a very convincing way, which the consumer is going to be uh, attracted by. You know, so there's a lot to it. You know, in terms of getting these models right in different in different markets. But if you do, and if you can then scale that, it's a very big commercial opportunity. And there's been you know there's a lot of profit in it. And that commercial opportunity is almost like you see in driving around rural America. I assume the same in Western Europe, like the the gas station becomes essentially the grocery store the you know retail outlet for that small town you know or small city or whatever it might be right i mean you know towns of populations of a thousand or two it really is just a gas station i mean they've cannibalized the local diner or whatever it might be to some extent yeah i mean you know it's it's they've come an awful long way from uh, i guess a very small kiosk which sold cigarettes and coke and perhaps some newspapers, you know, it doesn't look anything like that. It looks like a roadside restaurant with some gas pumps, you know. So in, in many cases, you know, with with a very compelling branded food range and, 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 you know, the best quality coffee you can buy, you know, that's a very different looking business. Is it? It, it is a very different business and it's a very successful model for retailers around there. And they, you know, as that food business becomes mature and, and, and the brand develops and in the US you know that I guess that you know the really famous people who do this are, are Wawa and Sheets and, uh, and and retailers like that then they become destinations for for consumers you know who who are not just stopping to pick up fuel but are there for the food there for the coffee you know and that's really the the criteria for success for some of these businesses that's not the same that's very much a developed world you know if you, if you know, go to our office in Sao Paulo or you travel you know I Latin America quite frequently for work you're not going to go eat at a Pemex, right? I mean, they are still very much the traditional fuel service and then mechanics set up. Are we seeing, are you seeing gas stations in the developing world start to go down the line of offering these 
broader retail offering? Yeah, I think you are actually. I mean, just take Brazil as an example. I mean, you've got uh, retailers like Ipiranga. I've spent quite a lot of time looking at that market over the years, and you know, it's uh, they're they're very much looking at, at developed markets and and moving along the same evolutionary scale, if you like, in terms of developing their retail offer. They they see that as their future. It's just a question of how sophisticated their offer is at the moment. I mean, it can be very sophisticated in markets like Brazil. You know, the coffee offer, the pastries offer can be extremely strong. So, yeah, you know, I'd hesitate to sort of categorize them as on a different level to to, to developed markets, because, you know, as you say, you know, as you know, in developed markets, there's a there's a huge variety of of retail experiences anyway, isn't there? It's not all good by any means. Um, It's a mixed bag, you know, so there are operators in, in, uh, you know, who who are doing this. And there's another one in Africa, um, North Africa called Ola Energy, who who are a bit like an EG group for North Africa. And uh, they're bringing in food service brands like Starbucks and Burger King and so on and operating those brands in their in their stations. And, uh, you know, the standard of the retail offer would be pretty similar to will be the same uh, as, as you get in in any other market. So I think actually there's a obviously it depends. There, there, it, the market does have to have a certain level of wealth in order to afford the, the, these products. But once it's reached that, operationally, it can very quickly catch up. And it has to catch up, obviously, if it wants to operate some of those international brands, you know. So, okay, so yeah, very interesting. And I guess the Uriparanga in downtown Sao Paulo is a little bit different to ones you get on the, the highways down yeah. there and stuff. So there is obviously variation, you know, in where they're, they're citing these these offerings. So it's also interesting as well, and I know this is where perhaps our world sort of intersects between what you mainly focus on and what HC Group does. From a trading and marketing and commodities piece, where we've been, obviously, most of HC Group is focused, you've seen some pioneers in the fuel retailers for notably Love, Pilot Flying J, a couple of others, particularly in the US, who have built out midstream marketing or upstream of retail marketing and trading capabilities certainly because there is an opportunity to capture margin by doing that but also to manage the volatility in the further upstream which is very prevalent now in what we've seen in 2022 which in a world where you know you are sense matter at the the retail side capturing getting the lowest cost fuel capturing that margin is becoming increasingly important and that's of course why those trading houses have entered the space and why also obviously the producers have the retail offering historically i guess more recently we've started to see those names you mentioned that come more from the fmcg side are also seeing that opportunity and looking at building out trading capabilities themselves around the world and i think that's going to play an increasingly important story certainly in the energy transition as these products get more volatile as the supply chains get more inefficient potentially and disjointed as a result yeah you know i think that seems to be a particular thing in the u.s market maybe perhaps because of the geography it certainly seems to be something that is seen as a, as a big business opportunity, has been seen as a big business opportunity for some time in the US, maybe more particular to the US market, I'd say. Yeah, and it also, I think, as well, in the developing market, I think it's probably, yeah, but I, I do think that's a continuing trend. And we've seen significant investments, you know, over the last decade, spearheaded by, I think, the likes of um, Love, you know, the business musket, but also 
pilot have made some really big pilot flying. Jay have made some big efforts here. But I think that's a, you know, certainly at least we're seeing that becoming a more global trend in a world where the, the wholesale side is so volatile to manage the supply chain. You do face quite a, a very efficient downstream space where there's no, you know, if you cost more than a couple of cents more than your next nearest competitor, you're not going to sell fuel, right? So I think it's become both crucial to manage the risks in their supply chain. It's no longer that sort of low cost, low volatility world that we were in for the last decade, but also commensurately the obverse of that, the corollary is that there's a lot of opportunity there to capture more margin if you can access more efficient barrels upstream. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's, you know, historically always been a way of, of, of leveraging more profit from from the fuel side of your business and, and obviously giving giving your business control as well, which it can be extremely important. So, yeah, I agree with that. The HC Insider podcast is brought to you by HC Group, a retained search, intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector. With six locations across Asia, Europe, and the Americas, and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. So this all sounds like quite a great setup, right? You've, you've had gas stations who have been pivotal to transportation to our way of life for a hundred years and you know almost a a status symbol of of being a developed economy of how efficient that network of distribution is as you've alluded to and 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 now becoming almost the corner store the grocery store for many communities around the world and even dare i say it becoming a, a destination of choice in in some exceptional examples around the world the the one big element that this world faces is obviously energy transition and in particular a move to electric vehicles where of course part of the joyous benefit is that you get to just charge it overnight as opposed to having to go to a gas station at least if you're in your normal sort of commute around around a city or whatever it might be i mean i imagine this topic is front and center of the work that you do and the the boardrooms of all of these fuel retailers that we've been discussing. Yeah, hundred percent. Of course, it is. It's seen as a as a challenge, yes, but it's also seen as an opportunity. I guess that's the business mindset. But it is an opportunity for a number of reasons. Perhaps just stepping back a bit before going into in, into where the challenges are, what the opportunity is. Big picture is there's you know a multi fuel future is rolling out as we speak and. The energy transition is accepted in our industry and it's being planned for. You know, that's definitely happening. It's very much something that the CEOs and the boards understand quite well now, I'd say, after looking at spending quite a few years studying uh, markets like Norway, which are almost like the, the global test lab for this, and other markets that where, you know, that energy transition is happening first. Having said that, of course, you know, the, the internal combustion engine and, and core petro technology is going to be with us for a while. And it's patchy, you know, so in some parts of the world, Norway, some parts of Europe, like, you know, Denmark and Sweden, the Netherlands, it's happening relatively quickly. Obviously, China as well, you know, California, the west side of, of Canada, you know, these markets are transitioning quite quickly. Other parts of the world, 
not so quick and it's going to take longer. So it's patchy. So I think the way those businesses are looking at this is very much to see a patchy future, or if you like, I think it's been described as a sort of mosaic of different energy products that need to be made available at a different yeah. pace in different markets. You know, that's, and, that's how it's been seen. Yeah, and you get it wrong, of course, and this is the challenge because it is a transition and the timelines is, is the big unknown, right, to some extent. We probably will all, there is a future in our, the way we will all have mobility via electrons rather than hydrocarbons but that we you know we don't know whether that's 20 30 or 100 years away but in the interim obviously we alluded to at the start you, you know you start having long lines on forecourts and governments change pretty quickly it's just, you know like like with that trash not being picked up yeah absolutely and you know it's it's it's, it's highly sensitive i i mean i'd say the industry is is it has got its head around it and just going back to some of the things we were talking about before around around food service and you know retail diversification on uh, on on these sites you know if 80% of your gross profit is coming from something other than fuel well and you're you know more and more a destination for those products you haven't got so much to worry about have you so you know in certain parts of the world where an island is a great example of this you know we have businesses like apple green and circle k and maxor who are really understand food and and can do an incredibly good job on that they are less dependent on fuel now so they're very well these kind of businesses are very well positioned for that energy transition when it comes to their market in some cases it hasn't really come yet at scale unlike perhaps norway but they're very well positioned for that because they've they've moved their dependency over from the old model you know which is where 80 percent of the gross profit was coming from fuel to you know it'd be much less important than that so there's a lot of businesses that are quite well adapted and ready for that change. And that's, I guess, that's the most important thing they can do to prepare, you know. So I think there's a real acceleration of diversification into into those other retail opportunities. And food service is the big one in order to prepare for the um, the energy transition as it comes across the world. It might be one decade in some markets. It might be two decades or more in others. Mm. The timing, the timing is that of that is 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 difficult to predict. Yeah. So let's get into some details there because I think that's also going to be a difference in where gas stations might be, or let's say roadside retailers that have fuel, whether that's electrons or hydrocarbons, might end up being predominant compared to today. But you talked about Norway there as kind of a test lab. Can you just you know what have you know, I know you spend a lot of time there with clients what what is the norwegian experience to date and what can that tell us about sort of how the you know directionally where this is headed well it's a good place to go and see the future because obviously norway is is a long way ahead of us down the ev curve and so it's it's very interesting to see what that means you know if you look at there's an ev association in norway that published some very good figures and if you look at their latest figures you know 79% of of passenger car sales were pure EV at nine percent were plug-in hybrids. So you know you add those two numbers together, and you know almost ninety uh, percent of passenger vehicles that are being sold in Norway come with a plug. So that's a huge difference to many other markets, and that's been over a number of years. You know it's been obviously building up over a number of years. It's taken perhaps longer in Norway than it will take in some other markets because. You know, there are much better EV models available now, you know, to, to much more attractive to the consumer to buy. You know, that wasn't the case in Norway a few years ago. It's changed. But 
if you look at what that means in Norway, you know, well, on average, around 70% of the total car park in Norway, that's the vehicles, you know, that are on the road are pure EV now, you know, so that's quite a big number. If you look at the big cities like Oslo and Bergen, it's closer to 30% of the vehicles on the road are pure EVs. So that starts changing things. That's why I call it, uh, many people call it an EV test lab, because you can start to, when you start to get that kind of volume, you start to get effects and, you know, you also start to get business opportunities from, from charging on the go, because it's probably a bigger opportunity than sometimes is considered. And obviously, if you know how to go about it, it's definitely worthwhile. What do you mean by that? I mean, can you sort of, I mean, this is the deployment of fast chargers that people are going to potentially stop more often or for longer periods of time and therefore need to spend more time in the retail store. Can you just help us understand what that opportunity might look like? Well, I guess, you know, the typical presentation, looking at the difficulties of this for, you know, from from a business prospect point of view for for our sector says, well, 80% of the charging is going to happen at home or, you know, or in the office. And so we've got a much smaller slice of the cake to to go after here than, than, than we did have as an industry. So that's bad news, right? And there's more competitors, you know, on the, on, for, for, for fast charging on the go as well, you know, because anyone can put up a fast charger. This is where the hairdresser has a fast charger in their, their parking lot, basically. Yeah, you know, exactly. Obviously there's some, there's some big changes. Having said that, There's certainly, you know, I think in Norway, what we do see is that there is certainly a business model for fast charging on the go that's working. And it requires you to rethink your your network for that opportunity. It it requires you to think about your investment in those charges, how many of those charges you you build. And, uh, you know, obviously it's an expensive thing. So some of these are, are quite big decisions, but there is good return on investment being proven in the Norway market. So, you know, there is certainly a way of, of making money out of this just from the charging uh, opportunity on, on the go. And I think the other thing to point out is, although, you know, the sort of traditional view of this as an opportunity said, well, it's, you know, it's a very small piece of the cake. A lot of things, a lot of charging will happen at home or, or in the office. You know, that's in Norway. I think a lot of those numbers have come from markets like Norway, where it's quite easy for most people to charge at home they have the opportunity to do that in other markets you know you take the uk as an as as an example it's much more difficult to charge at home there may be bigger opportunities in 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 markets like that where consumers still want to buy evs because they're the you know they're they're fantastic they're the next big thing even though they can't they know they're not going to be able to charge at at home you know so if you look at many many uk cities you know that's certainly going to be a bit of a problem so there is likely to be more of an on-the-go charging opportunity than, than people realise. And that's one side of the business equation to consider and one learning you can take from Norway. Mm. Does this mean, though, that those organisations that don't have a solid retail offering are going to face real challenges at some point? Again, that's the unknown X, isn't it? You know, in 10 years or whenever it might be, because, you know, they're now actually competing with the supermarkets so suddenly the competition for many of these fuel retailers no longer is other fuel retailers it's other retailers because everyone can stick as you say a, a, an ev charger in a parking lot in fact just in my neighborhood the supermarkets are filled now with them surprisingly given where we are 
So that is a that's going to rule out those organizations or, or going to be really challenging to fuel re retailers who just really focused on the fuel and maybe car car servicing around that compared to those that have built out these significant retail offer, offerings. Well, I think you know fuel fuel retailers who are still very much focused on their on their fuel business and haven't really diversified over the last few decades were going out of business anyway. You know, and we're under a lot of pressure, enormous pressure anyway. And in many cases, the small operators who who never made the investments in their retail space or maybe just didn't have the room for it on their sites, a lot of those sites have closed. You know, so if you look over recent decades, you know, the number of, of gas stations in markets like the UK, for instance, and, and, and the US has shrunk quite considerably. So that's happening anyway and will continue to happen. I think this is an accelerant to that. And a big incentive to to diversify those sites. And obviously, I'd say the other factor to to really consider looking forward to what kind of site is going to be successful is those sites need to be bigger. You know, they, they needed to be bigger anyway, so you could get a good retail offer in them. You know, even a drive through, that kind of thing. You know, is 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 working very well. So those sites needed to be bigger anyway, regardless of the energy transition, just to get you know, multiple food service offers on, for instance, and a, a grocery option, you know, merchandising and other other merchandise and, and so on. Obviously, when you add to that the the charging on the go opportunity, those sites really need to be quite a quite a lot bigger because you don't just want two chargers, you want multiple fast chargers as well. And those chargers are going to be in use not for two or three minutes, which is what we're historically used to, but 20 to, to 40 minutes of charge. So those those consumers are going to be at those sites for a lot longer. And again, you know, everything's moving towards larger scale. So mm. if you have sites that have got that kind of scale or you're acquiring them, you're moving your business, you're reorientating your business to, to the future, aren't you? Yeah. So we had Arkady Sozanov, CEO of Freewire Technologies, who, who have just done a, a number of joint alliances with, with P66 and Chevron and a few others to deploy fast charges onto the forecourt. And I encourage listeners to go back and have a listen to that episode we did with them this, a year ago or so now. And what also is forgotten is the power intensity that it takes you know, the amount of power. I think you mentioned that, you know, two fast charges in the forecourt of a Walmart that don't have a, a battery set up like his do can use more power than the entire Walmart, right? So firstly, these things, you know, infrastructure wise are quite challenging as well. It's no easy thing to put a bunch of fast chargers on your forecourt unless they have integrated batteries and so on. But it strikes me, and this might be a bit of a, a, a stupid question, so excuse me, but obviously the reason why a Chevron and a Shell are selling, you know, have retail fuel stations is because it's their stuff that they're selling. Are you seeing renewable power companies, utilities even thinking about getting building their own fuel power state, you know, fuel retail businesses in the future? Because now actually the product is power rather than than gasoline. Well, I mean, take Norway as an example. You know, you definitely see the utility companies moving into the on-the-go charging space as as a major competitor. So absolutely, it's 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 already happening. They're not really looking at the exist uh, you know additional retail opportunities around those those ev charging opportunities they're just looking at the ev charging opportunities and you know they and and obviously any location with a car park is suitable for developing that and uh, you know that's very much what's happening so absolutely and um you know they the utility companies i think are looking at 
that's a good way to enter a market, you know, so they're looking at uh, entering markets with that kind of offer. So they're very much here to stay in the on the go charging space, I'd say. Yeah, because it is fascinating. It is an opportunity when you think about, you know, you spend whatever it is, depending on your car, you know, four minutes filling up with with gas and in some stations around me, you want to get away as quickly as possible. But actually charging your car is a different timescale we're talking about. Ten minutes to get a fast charge for 200 miles or whatever it might be in some cases, but certainly longer in others. And that's a huge captive footfall that for a much longer period that you can get hold of if you are, and again, frankly, any type of retailer that has the right location. And one of the things all these gas stations do have often is very good real estate. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, you know, I guess when you have early adopters with EVs, you know, I guess they're not typical of the population, perhaps in in the time pressure they're under, perhaps. I mean, perhaps that's a bit of a generalization, but I think there's a bit of truth in it. They can afford perhaps to to not plan their their day out carefully and to, to waste that waste that 20 minutes and not really think how they're spending that 20 minutes doing other things as well as charging. But I think what what we've discovered in, in, in markets that are more mature as far as EV penetration goes is that as this becomes a normal thing to do, and normal people, if you can sort of pardon that description, have EVs and have very busy lives, you know, the way they start thinking about it is a bit different. They're thinking, where shall I, you know, what else can I do with my 20 minutes? as well as as charge because i don't just want to sit there and wait while my car charges you know and i may indeed have to queue a bit to get onto the charge you know so that opens up another sort of question as as far as the the efficiency of their day goes but once this gets into normal mature market status then um, where you spend how you choose where you spend your 20 minutes becomes the key thing that and that becomes that experience or well, that efficiency, you know, becomes, I think, the key differentiator in choosing your destination, your, your charging on the go destination. So it has to fit into your life, I think, is the, is the point. Mm. I guess final question is, it, it, this is going to be quite a tricky transition, right? Because it's not as as gas stations, hydrocarbon fuel retailers become less competitive as there are fewer acquirers of their of fuel. And again, this is, you know, let's just to say we're in 20, it was all still around and we haven't been taken down by solar flares uh, in 2042. As markets degrade, they become less efficient and prices go up and volatility comes back. I mean, it's going to be quite a difficult transition to navigate when we, it's half the cars are EVs and half the cars are gas. That's going to be a really rocky, choppy market for gas retailers to navigate, right? And I guess that's why they are as we said earlier, building these trading capabilities further upstream because they recognize how volatile that space could become. Yeah, you know, I, I guess there's predictions and there's reality, isn't there, you know, in terms of how energy transition is going to actually map out. I think one of the interesting things that perhaps has come up more recently is the role of hybrid vehicles in, in all this and the role perhaps of hydrogen in in, in heavier vehicles and, and and the part that that would play, you know. So, in in a way, all the cards aren't quite on the table yet, you know, in terms of how this is, is going to shape, shape up. Interestingly, in Norway, you know, hybrids, things really took off in Norway from 2017 onwards with pure EVs, you know, in terms of their sales going from, I don't know, about 20% up to 80% of, of all passenger vehicles. Interestingly, in the same period, Norwegian drivers lost interest in hybrid passenger vehicles. And so 
from that do you extrapolate that the same experience is going to be for hybrids is going to be is going to be the same in every other market or is norway different i think i mean i think if you listen to the some of the latest sort of thinking on this perhaps hybrids will play a more important part you know certainly some of the big car manufacturers have this view i think toyota for instance is uh, is is one of the of the big oems that certainly has the view that hybrids will play a very important part in this perhaps there are elements like that which will make the transition easier and uh, if you like less um more stable as it happens yeah it's really tricky isn't it i mean you can, it's it strikes me as we talk about this if you're on the board of one of these fuel retailers you've got a lot of different things to navigate and you and these you know you've got a lot of big bets to start making as you say yeah we don't who knows about hybrids i mean you talk to ev drivers and they love them and uh, not because they're electric vehicles but because of the convenience and other attributes that they have and you've got lots of different auto manufacturers making different bets whether it's on bmw coming back out and backing hydrogen or others going straight to ev it really is a a challenging space as you say sort of the the lifeline that these companies have built or at least those that are doing well have built is actually yeah they've shifted all you know fuel is is how people turn up or used to historically turn up and now it's all about the the retail opportunity the other trend that we haven't touched upon i just want to finish on is obviously digitization that obviously you know i know one of the things you work on is consumer loyalty rewards and so forth that's always been a big part of the fuel retail industry how is that evolving, changing, if anything, in the sector? Well, you know, I, I guess it, as in all retail, it's it's very important and it's being developed at pace. I mean, I guess you could look at a number of recent developments to, you know, to, to illustrate that. I think one of the most interesting one is is really how subscription services are developing. So if you look at the European and, and North American markets, you know, for instance, Circle K have, have started rolling out subscription for car wash so you know you you drive up and there's a lot of automation not much friction associated with getting that regular car wash and you're from the retailer point of view those customers are a a recurring revenue and it's not just car washes you know that you get that digital handshake happening i think sheets offer a fries subscription so you know you you get fries for a year on subscription and you know obviously there are conditions around how many fries you can eat but not many <laughs> it's a small example but i think that you know the digital relationship between consumers and, and, and these these operators is is again a, a very big opportunity and it's developing in a number of interesting ways i think subscription is is is, is a great example of that yeah well it's certainly fascinating and as as i said and it's a big part of our world as well as these organizations are building out these trading and marketing capabilities to capture margin and to to get ahead of uh, the volatility that's already there. Yeah, you know, and I'd say you know one thing I'd say, Paul, is that the those businesses that are really going after food service in particular are the ones to watch, and they're the ones mm. that are least worried about the energy transition because fuels is 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 an important component, but it's a replaceable component in their businesses when that happens in that market. You know, because they've built up competencies and brands and expertise in in food which is obviously a very good thing to be offering whether it's in a recession or or otherwise you know in terms of being something that consumers will want three times a day it's a very reliable business model uh, and yeah. a successful business model for them so they've got much less to worry about than those who are very focused on the fuels business as you were saying 
Yeah, yeah. Well, and if my neighbourhood's anything to go by, a lot of what were gas stations now no longer have working pumps and just sell, okay, in this case it's beer and <laughs> other probably less, you know, not exactly uh, fresh food. But that, that that's where that transition's already happened. Dan, for, for listeners, where can we find Insight Research and the, and the work that you do? And I know you attend a lot of conferences and give a lot of uh, presentations. Yeah, well, you can find us at insightresearch.co.uk. We're always at the NAC show, which is the big trade association for, for our industry. Uh, it was in Las Vegas uh, a few weeks ago. It's You always find that in October, somewhere in North America, either in Las Vegas, Atlanta or Chicago every year. And obviously on LinkedIn, uh, I, I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, perhaps too much. <laughs> well, Dan, I've found it really just really an interesting journey, understanding more about this from the retail side. And, you know, let's hope we can have you back on in the future and and see where it is. Because I think there's some really, you know, it is it is a microcosm of the energy transition, but one that touches every single person or, you know, us in our daily lives. Absolutely. Well, great pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.